0: are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. We're back this week with our second episode from Seamus 2019. This week, we will focus on fixed media or acousmatic pieces that were presented at the festival. The first interview is our friend and Adjective Composer Collective member Carter John Rice. Carter is an assistant professor of multimedia arts technology at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And Carter also served as assistant tech coordinator at Seamus 2019.
1: Can I give the same speech I gave for Alex Christie's piece? Because I could say that again all day. it. I already forgot it. What was it? No, the way... Did you see... Were you in there when I... Oh, okay. He had me, like, introduce his piece, and people thought I did that, but he wrote out, like, a script for me to write, and it was really funny. So, anyway, I had fun with that, but... Something about Lightball. Yeah, it was like it was a photosensitivity warning, but, like, with style, and he had... The girl from Ipanema was playing in the background. Like, we, we actually played it. Yeah, it was fun. All at his request. This is how he wanted his piece introduced. It was fun. Anyway, is that level it's reasonable? Yeah. Okay. Fine a man who needs
0: no introduction carter rice another adjective new music uh, composer collective member and frequent overdrinker as well as having his very own episode way back one of the first few episode 4 yeah we're we're going super old school so carter <clears throat> as per usual with one of your pieces i could find no information on it absolutely none online finally when the program book came out these are the program notes verbatim I'm just going to read them just some cool samples made into musical gestures don't overthink it and 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 since you are one of the assistant technical directors and insanely busy I I, you know we'll, we'll just keep this short but uh your piece is tinkering uh tell us I guess anything more you want to say, other than the program notes?
1: So first of all, I drink very lightly, thank you very much. You know this. I continue to cut back in my old age. Um, no, thank you very much for asking. And per usual, thank you for um, taking the time to do this. It's appreciated by myself and all the other composers. But so this piece, uh, well, it was premiered in your backyard, which was fun. So It was. I did have the added benefit of seeing the world premiere. Yeah. So it was premiered at Ohio University, and aside from a. Sh- Performance also at Western, which is where I teach, so that hardly counts. Uh, this is the only other time it's been played. So uh, this is its sort of nationwide premiere. It's its non-Ohio premiere, because <laughs> that's
0: non- Midwest.
1: west of the the Mason-Dixon. Yeah. I don't know. No. Um, so let's see, a little bit about this piece tinkering right um, so referring to like children's toys or like tinkering the idea of playing around with the thing so all the samples come from like a little kit that you can buy of children's musical toys and we've all seen those and I think a lot of us played with them when we grew up little horrible tambourines finger symbols that don't ring <laughs> it's like- that's the sound it makes when you... It was, the worst, it was the worst sample I've ever taken. So I ended up scraping together in like maracas and those little wooden sticks that are textured and you can rub together. So all the samples came from that, and I think I recorded those samples about a year or two ago. I was, I was still in the middle of my doctorate, and I went, okay, I'm going to record all these samples. So I set up a stereo pair and got just a few hours of me sort of performing and playing around with these, and I was really happy with the samples, and I knew I was going to do something with it. And then, and I... my. My timeline might be hazy, so you can correct if this, but you reached out to me and you said, hey, we have our sort of surround sound concert or, or live, uh, electronic concert. I forget what the exact thing. And you said, um, I think you just asked, is there something I could put out?" You asked if the coffee piece could go on, I think. Yeah, because uh, the coffee
0: piece was actually what we featured on this last Seamus of yours. And obviously, a video piece on a podcast works really well. So, but... Yeah, but uh, we wanted to, I wanted to put your coffee piece on, the coffee video piece on a concert and just kind of ask, did you have anything else? You know, because the coffee piece is only like, what, three minutes, four minutes, something like that?
1: Yes, and this one's also short. This is also about four and a half minutes. And then I think I said like, oh yeah, I'm actually working on something new. Maybe we could, a new 5.1 piece, maybe we could throw that on and you were very nice and you said yes. And then I started this, I moved to Kalamazoo and I started this new job, which has been you know, understandably time consuming as most new gigs are and I kind of forgot that I had agreed to do this it was not on, I didn't physically put it on a to-do list like I normally do and then I looked at the calendar and I was like well I'll be <laughs> That Ohio gig is on Wednesday, (laughs) and this was on, like, Saturday or something. It was very—or maybe Friday. And so this ended up being put together very quickly in about three days or so. I mean, luckily, I already had the samples. They had been um, noise-reduced and trimmed, and they were were ready to throw in and start doing stuff. So I just went through to a lot of my sort of sampling and digital signal processing toolbox of stuff I like to do and worked just a long three or four days and put it all together. I mixed it on four speakers— even though it's 4.5.1, and I trusted that the stuff being sent to the fifth speaker would work, and it did. <laughs> There's very little in that center speaker. It's a couple blips. Yeah, so it was put together quickly, and it, it kind of turned out okay. I, I think it went reasonably well when it got played, and I'm, I was happy. I was surprised it got accepted because it was such a quick piece, so I was happy to have it at Seamus. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, since, since our last Over Drinks, when we were talking about, like, when you were talking about musical drama inherent in in both your work and the work you like to listen to you know i kind of listened to tinkering in a new way after that i mean with kind of big bold gestures in mind that that are you know pretty apparent in this piece and i'm kind of wondering is if that is why you kind of tend towards the shorter side of compositions because i mean a lot of your pieces are
1: fairly short right yeah, at least recently. That's a that's an interesting I've never thought about a correlation between uh, the sort of dramatic energy output of some of my stuff, and how that maybe doesn't require going on for very long, right? Because I mean, I,
0: not only would it be I mean, kind of tiring for you, the composer, to like keep keep that level of energy, that level of tension up, but I also think it, you know might be tiring for the listener. And I mean, you know, like for instance, the coffee piece, this piece, some other pieces I've heard of yours that tend towards the shorter side. It's like it's it's one idea. You know, you're not you're not going into multiple sections. It's like this is what I have to say, and I'm saying it.
1: Yes, that's true, and I have enjoyed doing that artistically for sure. And um, some of my pieces I certainly are longer and do explore other ideas. But yeah, I think sometimes it's fun to pick one thing, do say just what you need to do with it, and just move on. You know, um, and I think that there's some that can be effective. I think what did you, you were I forget what you just said a second ago, but I really this is what I have the, to say. I'm saying. Yeah, no, well, the. The concept of music that's like very dramatic and uh, kind of has a lot of energy and information to say and maybe not spending too much time on it is something maybe Wagner could have l- learned you know like because <laughs> we were talking about people we don't like and that's how, I've always had a really hard time with Wagner because it's just like exhausting to me you know and so maybe that's why if my music is uh, more dramatic and sort of cinematic and theatrical yeah it just doesn't need to go on for too long and this, this piece definitely I mean it has a sort of quiet introduction and then it's just like nah until the end you know yeah how does it go again? <laughs> I don't need to. You got it. You can loop it. You can do whatever you need to. And then it's just like, nah. And then it's just like, nah. And then it's just, and then it's just, nah, 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 nah. And then it's just like, nah.
0: Believe me, I will loop that. Yeah. <laughs> All right.
1: Well, uh, great. I mean, what movies are you excited about? Well, I, you know, I've I've been a really big fan of the the Marvel Cinematic Universe since I was in high school because like, see, I can't, I, I'm just not into that. So what 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 do you see in it? Sure. Okay, and that's a very fair question, and I, I know Eli Fieldsteel hates them. <laughs> we always joke about that, but so for me, they're they're really just entertaining escapism. And they, I think they shouldn't be taken too seriously. And, and I think if you approach them that way, they're fun. But I have really appreciated this, like like 23 films now, and how much time has gone into that, and how there are definitely a few standout films and standout characters and standout casting choices that have made me just kind of resonate with this. And then part of it's just a social thing. I've had a couple of friends that um, from my, from college that I sort of have gone to... Every Avengers film within theaters, even after we all moved apart. So that's. Didn't, didn't you talk about that? Like, uh, you you told me about this recently. Like how you like flew or something to just go see a movie. Yeah, actually, a few years ago for um, Age of Ultron, the la- uh, second to last Avengers film, I drove to Minneapolis. We watched the movie, and I drove right back from Ohio, I think, or Indiana. So that was like twelve hours there and watched the movie and came back. And then the last one, I think, I flew. I forget where we saw the last one, but I flew somewhere. And then actually, yeah, in about fa- four weeks, I'm flying to Denver. <laughs> and then I'm flying back. Yeah, it's fun. But it's, it's also a good chance to see two of my best friends. So it's, it, we kind of treat as an excuse, and yeah, that'll be fun. So that, that's what I'm excited about. Well, I look
0: forward to the next time we get to drink together, which should be after the meal we're having right now. So uh, with that being said, let's go ahead and listen to this piece. This is Tinkering by Carter Rice. Next, I sat down with Leah Reed, who you will remember from her Lexical Tones podcast, which was episode 18. Leah is currently an assistant professor at the University of Virginia, where she teaches courses in music composition and technology. Leah, welcome back to Lexical Tones. Thank you. Longtime listeners will remember you from way back in episode like 18 (laughs) and we're, I think this will be in, you know, these set of episodes will be in the hundreds. So, um, yeah, welcome back. We just heard your piece, Sketch. Um, I don't know how to say it with the parentheses. Is there a special way to say the title?
2: No, it's Sketch, but it's a play on Etch a Sketch. So, um, it was a joke to myself. So,
0: (laughs) got it. Um, This is kind of a meta work. You know, you're, you wrote a piece about the sounds that occur while you're writing a piece.
2: Yes, this is true.
0: So tell us kind of the process of composing this work and maybe perhaps some of the techniques you are using to do so. And, and you know, I, I, I kind of have to ask this of anyone who's working in acousmatic music. Why did you write it?
2: Sure. So I was experimenting when I was working on another piece and... Um, with different markers and pencils and with writing sounds and so I put it on the back burner in terms of something that I really wanted to be working on. Um, over the summer I had uh, two different projects that I was working towards. I was at MPAC working with their wave field synthesis array and also needed to compose a piece for Microfolia, um, a project, a CD project that I'm um, on Down in Brazil, and on granular sounds and micro sounds. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that a piece that could explore wave fields in this as well and bring together lots of really fine micro, you know, enlarged types of sounds would be great, and that these would be the perfect sounds to explore. Mm-hmm. So um, the piece is five minutes long because of the restrictions of the CD, <laughs> and it was the perfect amount of time for me to spatialize with the time I had at yeah. MPAC. So there's a, it exists in two different forms, in um, well, as a well, it exists as a stereo piece, also a multi-channel that we heard today, and then 192-channel Wayfield.
0: Oh my god! <laughs> that, yeah, I, I can I can imagine you're you're only going to hear the 192 version every so often.
2: Yeah, yeah probably.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, it's a you said it was like uh, it's about a five-minute work. It's really fast work. You know, it's it has really dynamic gestures, and I think so often with you know fixed media, we kind of forget about tempo or, you know, like perceived temporal tension. And I thought you did that really, really well in this piece.
2: Thank you. Yeah. It's something that I try to think about a lot when I'm composing and I'm very strict with my structures and how I'm thinking about how time is unfolding and the perception of time as well.
0: Now, how did, I mean, with the, with the 192 speakers, obviously, you know, I'm I'm sure there's, there's a system you're working in that, but, you know, just boiling it down to eight, like what, what were you thinking about in terms of turning it into a ring of speakers that is on one plane?
2: Well, with Wavefield, you still have the sense of 3D, so you yeah. have, it's like a hologram illusion that can come at you, so you can still, so I was playing with that system, exploring that sounds that could still be around you or behind you as well, but you have these holograms that are moving around you, so it was different to translate it into both a stereo work and with, um, with the eight channels, but what's interesting about the sounds is that actually if there's no movement in them, they're completely static and they're they're not really interesting to hear but the minute they move so well so the minute that you start playing with it in space it's a really dynamic it becomes a really dynamic sound to explore all the different writing
0: yeah absolutely and that and I definitely felt that you know having listened to this before the festival in a stereo version and then hearing it here like the piece uh, comes alive you know e- even more than than it is on the stereo version which i still think like the stereo you know there's still absolutely a lot of movement in the stereo, you know in the stereo plane but you know as soon as you can have a kind of dialogue between front, back, side, you know, and, and all the, the, all the combinations you have of, you know, only eight speakers, (laughs) only eight. Oh my God. Um, but, but that, but that kind of dialogue you can have with the sounds and the, and the type of spatial structures you're creating really like add to the, um, to the dynamic quality of the piece even more. Um, other than paper and writing, what are some of the other sounds of the piece?
2: Sure. So, um, all the different sounds. So, I started each section explores a different process in writing or drawing or sketching so uh, within the the writing sounds we have um, a subset of the different types of materials I was using so it's not just paper there's also you know cardboard different types of markers different types of pencils then we get into like crunching up the paper so but it's not just that it's also then tinfoil that's being uh, crunched up and then that's where the the balls that are rolling around it's the tin foil because it works really well in other resonating objects and bounces around yeah. really well um, there's typewriters there's me talking and whispering there's um, a lot of scissor sounds and mm-hmm. cutting up different things and um, there's knives um, that are cutting so on different types of uh, uh, cutting boards like all different sizes to get different timbres out of the, the materials themselves and different sizes of knives too um, there's uh, printers in the piece.
0: Yeah. Oh, my God. The end. with Because the, the, the printers really come in at, at the very the very last second. And these are old school printers, right? <laughs> Where did you get these? Did you just have these lying around? Or did you have to like eBay them or something?
2: I had a couple of uh, different ones that I had recorded a long time ago. And then what I started to look for, I ended up... Uh, I recorded 90% of the, 95% of the sounds myself, but there was a couple of those ones, including one of the printer sounds at the end, that I ended up uh, sourcing out and buying yeah, from a different. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was that was just so funny to me. Like that immediately takes you to this. Like, I mean, if I think we're we're probably about the same age, and you know, that immediately takes you to that time in your life when, obviously, printing moved that slow and you heard all those like crunchy nasty sounds coming from your printer is like a big big nostalgic moment I think was it kind of meant as that or were you using it just as a um, just as a sound object
2: it was mainly as a sound object. I explored different, I listened to many different types of printers from, you know, modern 3D printers through, um, through the old ones and just I liked the timbre and the way that it worked and the, the rhythmic content so, um, of how it played and that it told the story. So underlying the whole piece, there is this storyline that's running through it and it's um, from start to this sort of frenzied uh, composing or writing drawing process. So by the end, you know, the, the piece ends with a stapler. And, um, as they're, you're uh, stapling the piece together. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> Okay.
0: there was, and I mean, now that you bring up the story, there was one part in it where it seemed like it was this, you know, a, a big, a big gesture. And then all of a sudden everything cut out and there was like a sh- you know was that was that kind of uh playing into this uh bigger narrative of like you know you're writing a piece about composing and that's kind of like to me, I took it as like shutting out a bad idea or something you know like bad ideas are creeping in or, or maybe ideas that just don't fit with the piece are creeping in. And it's like no no no, no go away.
2: yeah, that's definitely part of it also, um I just really like some of the different um you know. The mouth sounds in the, the process of I, during that part of the piece I'm scrunching up paper a lot and throwing it back in the bin so it's like being okay just you know trying to tell myself to um, think things through and um, and to focus my ideas more with what I was working on and so some of these different sounds helped convey some of the ideas that I was um, thinking about plus I just like the way that they sound from a timbral perspective yeah. as well
0: so uh, before we listen to it um you know, uh, remind our listeners, where can they go find your other works? How can they connect with you?
2: Right, you can find more information about me on my website, leareadmusic.com, or my SoundCloud page.
0: Cool, so let's listen to this work. This is Leah Reed and Sketch. Finally, I sat down with John Fielder to revisit his piece, Losura and talk about some other ideas that we touched on in his original podcast, episode 65. John currently serves as full-time instructor of audio technology at SAE Expression College in Emeryville, California, with courses in music theory, acoustics, interactive audio, and electronic music composition. John also served as venue manager at Seamus 2019. All right, I'm sitting here with John Fielder. Uh, welcome back to Lexical Tones. This is your third time on the podcast. I think that's the record. Third time in one year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you were, uh, and, and well, it's definitely the record for a non-collective uh, member of adjectives. So yeah, congratulations. I, I think we'll send your trophy out later. Um, we actually featured uh, Los Jura, on, uh, I said it right, didn't I?
3: Yes. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> um, we featured this piece on a podcast, um, your podcast, number 65, and you were also on kind of a, well, famous or infamous episode, number 63, uh, that was an aesthetic, uh, aesthetic debate, you know, about like uh, modernism and minimalism and that kind of stuff. One kind of, well, at least the one that Jamie won't let Jamie won't let me hear the end of, because I got a little bit too tipsy on that one.
3: Yeah, we all had our
0: moments in that one. Yeah. So I don't want to repeat our conversation that we had about this piece, but, you know, kind of let's remind the listeners about the, the story of this piece for Fixed Media, Lociera. What uh, what does the title mean? What types of sound sources are you using? That kind of stuff.
3: Yes, the the title is uh, Swedish, and it translates to detach. And so it started out as the audio component of a collaborative project at UT Austin uh, in 2016 um, with choreography, digital media, and electronic music. And that was my component. And the theme that the choreographers gave me was detachment. And they didn't really give me anything other than that to go on. Uh, even when pressed for more details, um, they <laughs> insisted on a single word. So I told them, okay, well, there's this thing that I do, this, you know, fix me to music based on this idea of what's called reduced listening, um, where you sort of divorce the meaning from sounds. You know, sounds are then taken sort of on their own merits and not really for their actual contextual uh, meanings. And so I... Didn't use any kind of synthesis. I only used real, you know, real-world sounds, which is something I do a lot. And so there's anything from uh, scraping guitar strings, oil cans, uh, uh, plucked sitar strings, uh, throwing fluorescent light bulbs into empty dumpsters, and just all kinds of things to create, uh, you know, different kinds of, you know, either sort of nice, soothing sounds to, you know, really aggressive, you know, abrasive kinds of noises.
0: So the last time we had this, we had a pretty good conversation, I think, about uh, Schaefer's, uh reduced listening. And you said you kind of wanted to revisit that this time.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think, I, you know, I had actually been thinking about it a lot since we had that conversation and sort of where I fall on it. And I think we both kind of were like, if I remember right, like, you know, don't fully buy into yeah. it. I I think it's where we both landed on it. Yeah. And I think that my, I haven't really uh, budged much on that, but I think I'm, what I'm finding is that I'm able to do that to a greater extent now uh, than I was about a year ago. I think because I've been trying to train myself to, you know, practice that and do more of it to where, you know, When I, you know, we're at the Seamus Conference right now, and a lot of the fixed media pieces that I'm hearing are, you know, I keep hearing a lot of these really sort of crinkly, crackly kind of sounds, and at one point, I, you know, thought, well, how would I make that? And I started thinking, you know, I could use, you know, Velcro, or breaking twigs, or, uh, you know, scraping coins over aluminum foil, and anything from very general to, like, hyper-specific sound sources... And I thought, you know, this is kind of, like, maybe this is part of it, you know? The, not really so much the act of repeatedly listening to something until you just take the sound on its own merits, but thinking about sound more in terms of not what is the source, but what do I, what kind of sources do I need to, or types of sources do I need to create the kinds of sounds and timbres that I want? And so I think maybe that's sort of where I've landed on reduced listening. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I,
0: I've never really... Like you said, I ne- I've never really bought into it, just because to to be able to uh, at least my interpretation of it, to be able to do that, you have to not you, you have to tr- kind of train your brain not to immediately make associations, and that's I, I think that's really difficult because you know humans were we have evolved to basically. I mean, what one of the amazing things about the human brain is that we can predict, mm-hmm. right? That's how we have evolved and our prediction skill, you know, being able to look at, you know, look at the leaves on the tree and know, oh, you know, we better move because it's, the cold is coming mm-hmm. or, or, you know, look at the stars and see, like, you know, gain some information from that just by predicting, but it also works with sound too. You know, you're out in the woods, you hear a twig snap when you know you're the only, you are the only one around. You can probably predict that there's an animal and it might kill you. You know, so it, 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 it's a kind of evolutionary, uh, survival tactic that I think we have, uh, we have evolved, and part of that prediction is being able
3: to identify a sound source. Yeah, uh, yeah, and you're you're right. It's it's not something that's easy to do, and I think in certain cases is impossible. You know, and I had a this is a different topic for another time, maybe. But I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine about you know he was asking me what are some of like the the tropes and maybe the, you know the tired worn out tropes of acousmatic music and different sounds. And you know, I I said you know the one that really bothers me is footsteps, mm-hmm. um, and it's you know it doesn't come up as much as it did. I think when I was listening to a lot more student pieces, you because know, that's something that I think we all do at some point, you know, in our, when we're learning how to write fixed media. Um, but you know, I'll hear like the most you know beautifully crafted and sculpted sounds, you know, in an acousmatic piece and then as soon as I hear footsteps I just it kind of takes me out of it because I can't you know disassociate that sound with that context um, it's not like something as simple as like you know using a slamming metal door for an impact Like it's you can divorce that and that just sounds like an arrival or a hit but footstep nothing else sounds like footsteps mm-hmm. and you can't I think it reduced listening while interesting in theory, and I think is a good thing to practice and think about, I don't think can be applied across the board. I don't really think it should be, um, maybe for that reason, because you can't just constantly disassociate every single sound you hear with its actual context, or then the sounds themselves kind of don't really have any meaning either. Mm -hmm. And
0: I kind of wonder if I've had such a hard time with reduced listening, because I think sound and action are so intertwined mm-hmm. for me. And when I hear a sound, I am, you know, I immediately imagine how it was made. So you were, you were kind of talking about like, oh, well, these crinkly, crackly sounds. How would I make that, Nat? How is this? Was this particular sound made? So I, yeah. I think that that's kind of interesting. But I, I also think this kind of goes into my love for uh, Luke Ferrari, mm-hmm. and and hearing and envisioning the space as much as you hear what's happening in the space. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the the piece uh, in the, uh, pretty close to the beginning, we hear these kind of this low E acoustic guitar mm-hmm. string kind of like, uh, you know, digging the pick into, yeah. you know, scraping it. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it's kind of that sound is it, it triggers a memory for me because I can see exactly how you're grinding the pick, mm-hmm. and and you know where it is like in con, in, in relationship to the bridge and, and something right. like that. It's I, I just find it so it's so hard to just shut that off because mm-hmm. because we've you know we've trained ourselves um, to yeah. to have those specific memories.
3: Well, and not only that, you know, even taking along the the lines of the guitar, there's a really great. Uh, fixed-media piece is very hard to find, unfortunately, called uh, Textorius by Arthur Campella. And it's all guitar sounds. And if you don't know anything about Arthur Campella, he's this really talented composer and guitarist who does this series, um, I believe they're called uh, Percussion Studies for Guitar, where he's playing guitar the way a guitarist would, but it's all of these really sharp, um, percussive sounds. And it sounds more like treating the guitar as a percussion instrument. And Textorius is the same kind of idea, where uh, instead of just playing it as a real-time acoustic piece, he's recorded all of these sounds and then ordered them in a way that sort of sounds like this just hyperactive, multi-layered version of one of his percussion studies. But the idea is specifically to associate that, those sounds, with the guitar. It's like it's the opposite of reduced listening and not taking the sounds on you know their own merit free from any context of where they came from but specifically with the context where they came from and thinking because you hear it and you associate all of the sounds with guitar that it's possible to make on a guitar but not in that order at that speed with that kind of layering and so it's sort of the idea is I think it's interesting that with that you know writing a piece of music in a style that's built on divorcing sounds from their source to some degree, is ignoring that entirely and is still amazingly effective. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, that kind of reminds me of um,
0: the way I have listened to, um, for instance, uh, Eleni Lilios's piece, uh, Dreams in the Desert. Yeah. You know, that middle part where I, I don't know what she's crunching. It has to be some kind of vegetable or... <laughs> or, you know, I, I, don't know. It, it, it That's sounds, how I would make it
3: <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly.
0: That's how I would make it. You know, it's pro- for me, it's like either uh, celery or, or something like that. But, but the point is, is like you in that middle section, you start off and it sounds real. It sounds yeah. like a human being is making it in real time. Mm-hmm. And then there, it crosses this threshold to where Oh, that, that's impossible! Like no one could make all these sounds simultaneously, at the same time, in, in these different ways. And I think that's that's always been really interesting to me. Like, where does it cross? Where is that kind of blurry zone where we don't know if this is real or unreal?
3: Yeah, and that's I, I think that's sort of the interesting thing. It's you, it's a balancing act that you kind of have to play with each piece that you write and with each new set of sound sources. Um, I, uh, for Low specifically, I was trying to make everything sound as unlike its source as I possibly could, um, with the exception of a few moments, and the get- scraping guitar string being one of them. Like I intentionally wanted that to sound like a scraping guitar string. But beyond that, everything is, is sort of designed to not really be so dramatically transformed that it's, it's completely impossible to associate with anything. Um, like the sitar strings are, are pitched way, way up and then triggered through a sampler so I could get these really you know, t- accurate timing and these rhythmic ideas um, but it still sounds like a string instrument, it mm-hmm. just sounds like this bizarre string instrument that you've right. never heard before. <laughs> but i think that's part of it and it's like um, you've got
0: a couple layers removed yeah. you know it still has the the physics of the thing but it doesn't have all the characteristics yeah
3: right and there are elements that are sort of maintained but then there are these new features that are added or enhanced and and i think i honestly that spectrum that you're talking about has always been interesting to me uh to explore and when i was studying it. UT Austin, Russell Pink's noise used to talk about this with uh, text sound compositions with this spectrum of processing voice where you have completely unprocessed voice and then dramatically processed voice. Um, And then in writing text sound compositions, you kind of work within that spectrum. Um, And we would listen to a lot of pieces. And I think that was what another thing that really kind of got me into that is not only listening to Elaney's music. Uh, with what you referenced, but also that idea of, you know, you can apply that spectrum to anything, not just voice. We just happen to be talking about text sound composition. But I think that's sort of the idea is, you know, finding that balancing act of recognizable sources and heavily processed sounds to a point to where maybe you don't even know that two different sounds are coming from the same source. Yeah. Um, how how would you place this piece
0: within your kind of larger output? You know what are the what are the threads that you like to follow through throughout multiple pieces that are that are also kind of present in this work?
3: Hmm. This was uh, this was a turning point for me. There were two pieces I can point to in my output that were really like sort of uh, you know watershed turning point pieces for me uh, and this is one of them uh, as far as acousmatic music goes and the other one was uh, dissociation sequences my uh-huh. cello and electronics piece uh, that we also talked yeah. about on the other one and I think it, both of these pieces they were written in pretty close at the same time the cello piece was written in the fall of 2015 around finished in October And then I started Losira around maybe January and finished it by about February or March. And I think both of them sort of sparked this uh, interest in getting very high-quality recordings, um, recording everything that I could find, and trying to generate as much material as I could, but also trying to emulate a lot of the things that I had heard. Um, So like with... uh, dissociation sequences, I was trying to emulate a lot of the sort of uh, instrumental writing and interaction between instruments and electronics that I had heard in some of my favorite pieces and composers who I really admired. And I was trying to do the same with Loser. It wasn't really, it was in some ways I mean, I did it for this uh, concert, you know, this ears, eyes and feet collaborative thing, but on a more personal and I guess more selfish level, I was really trying to use it as an opportunity to sort of emulate some of my compositional heroes in acousmatic music. And I think I ended up really sort of tapping into something there. Um, And so I think both of those sort of started a trend in both of those directions. One, dissociation sequences with electroacoustic writing, and then also informing my acoustic writing, and then Loster in in informing basically how I work in acousmatic music. And uh, since then, I've only written... I think one other acousmatic piece um, in April of 2017 called "Think," and it actually hasn't been. No, it, it was premiered at the uh, University of Nebraska Kearney New Music Festival last year. Um, I unfortunately wasn't there, but um, yeah, I think that is sort of, that piece. Think was sort of like the next step, and I'm working on a couple of things right now, and I think it's it i guess it, yeah it was like a jumping off point for this sort of obsession with uh creating the most you know the richest you know crispiest kinds of sounds and uh you know just really high quality sound design um and in some ways less focus on creating crafting you know. Musical compositional stru- formal structures and more focus on just generating a massive amount of materials and then over time thinking you know seeing like, oh, I could put this with this or this with this and that was kind of how I made lo it wasn't it wasn't made linearly it was I made the uh, the actually the big impacts that you hear about two thirds of the way through those that was the first thing I created because I was just practicing making. Uh, what I patented uh, and U.T. Austin, I called the swoosh and boosh, which is <laughs> it's all, over, all over the place in acousmatic music, and I just couldn't really make it happen. And so I started experimenting with Doppler effects and different kinds of uh, layering, you know, uh, real-world sounds of, you know, uh, synthesized drums with real drums with you know know, slamming doors and flipping large breaker switches and things and just trying to create these really you know you know strong uh, impact and attack sounds and then I moved on from there and I had this tape measure and I ran that through the uh, freezing unit and all of the sort of the chittering you hear in the beginning and the end is excerpts from what eventually was about a five to six minute improvised sound file that I create where I just froze different sections of the sound file and stretched and shrunk the window and added more loops and pitch shifted down and sort of just improvising and performing plugins Mm -hmm. and generated a bunch of material and then just extracted what I wanted and then I created some of these drones and then I created this little sitar groove and I thought, you know, can can I put these together? How can I... Maybe these will work and they ended up working out pretty well and it was sort of like... I I made the materials and then kind of found I I don't want to say I, I sort of let them find their way. That's a little too uh, yeah. you know, but that's sort of what happened. You know, I didn't really plan out the form. It just kind of sort of created and morphed into what it is. Well, before we listen to some uh, swoosh and boosh.
0: Um, <laughs> That's a that's a good term. I'm going to use that. You know, you you also I was listening to it again recently. You also had this. uh, What what do you describe yourself as you're a post kerplunkity
3: post kerplunkity neo modernist. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, before we listen to uh, this piece, you know, remind everyone uh, about your website, where they can find you on, on, you know, find more of your music, find you on social media, stuff
3: like that. Yeah. Uh, so my website is uh, John Fielder, J-O-N-F-I-E-L-D-E-R, uh, dot com, W-E-E-B-L-Y. Um, I'm on SoundCloud at www.soundcloud.com slash J-O-N dash F-I-E-L-D-E-R. Uh, and uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram somewhere, but it's very little content there. Uh So,
0: (laughs) all right, let's hear this piece. This is Loshira by John Fielder. Let's see. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.